Hi, this is Ikim. Hi, this is Katrina. Welcome to High Impact Coffee Hour, where you can listen to two psychology nerds chat with academics about philosophy, feminism, and science. Hi, my name is Charlie. Uh, I majored in psychology and graduated in uh, 2019, right? Um, and uh, I'm currently working as a data analyst in the corporate sector. Um, right now I'm in finance, but I'm hoping to find a new job in 2021, maybe jumping to the medical field. Um, Ooh, yeah, and then I'm also, you know, I wanna see how, how my new job works out, but I might go back to research. Um, I don't, it's complicated. I have a partner, uh, I'm getting married in six months. Congrats. Um, and so I can't like, he's got a job here with like a lot of career potential. So it's not, I, I can't just like pack up and move, you know, just, just because so, uh, my career is a little bit in flux right now. Um, but I have, uh, nearly two years experience in corporate data analysis now. Um, and I did a honors research thesis, uh, on transgender issues that won the undergraduate research symposium award. Wow. Yeah, big deal. Incredible. <laughs> it's a big deal at USC. It's like one of the prizes that all the honor students really seek after. Um, and so then how are you doing during this year of COVID? Uh, I've been working from home since last March. Um, and my fiance had moved in very shortly before then, which is good because if I'd been living alone and working from home, I would have lost my mind months ago. Um, but yeah, so I got engaged. We got engaged basically because we got quarantined together 24-7 for months and still liked each other. Languages did you learn? I'm curious. Uh, I taught myself R in undergrad, which is what got me a job as a data analyst. Um, and right. then I got there and they were like, oh, we don't actually want you to use this one. Teach yourself these languages. There's no training. Go. Um, so since then, I have taught myself SQL and I have taught myself Python. And I also use um, DAX for Excel products. Um, and I use some like command line programming interfaces for deployment. So like programming into the back screen with black screen with the white text, uh, like like they wow. do in the hacker movies. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, the thing about professional data analysis is it's like so much programming. It's a lot of programming. Mm, that makes sense. Like real life data is pretty messy, right? Oh God. <laughs> yeah. It's like 90% cleanup and data structuring, 10% analysis. So do they usually expect data analysis to know the programming languages before coming on? Because you mentioned that you kind of lost well, your job. They knew I didn't. Um, <laughs> it would help, you know, if you did know them beforehand. Um, but like, because I had taught myself one programming language, they were like, oh, he can teach himself programming languages on the job. Uh, and it was painful, and it took a long time, and it was really hard, but I did do it. Um, so now I would consider myself fluent um, in R, Python, and um, SQL in particular. Um, and then I can I can work to some extent in a few other um, domains. Because I remember you said that they hired you specifically for your ability to learn programming really fast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess that's kind of like an uh, an atypical career trajectory for someone going from a psych background without a CS traditional background going into data anal analysis. Uh, yes, I would say it's very non-traditional. Um, it's not easy, but it is a viable career path. Um, like I said, I really, really like the programming parts. I really like data analysis, um, but I definitely like most of my job I had to learn on the job. It, not a ton of what I learned in psychology applies to it. How was the shift from psychology, I guess, undergrad 
to this new environment where it's mm-hmm. all full of data analysts and people from different backgrounds. Yeah. Um, so it's good because I like math. I like programming. Um, I like data work. So that's good. Um, and I did in my undergrad that to help myself, uh, my last two years in particular, I took a lot of data heavy classes and really concentrated myself on data. My thesis had some pretty complicated data analyses in it and was written in R um, and stuff like that. Um, but so I get to my new job and like, I don't really know anything about economics or finance, uh, which I am working in. So I had to be trying to learn that at the same time as like trying to learn new programming languages. Um, and so, you know, I definitely, it was definitely very sink or swim um, and I'm still treading water uh, to this day. Um, but, you know, I've, I've really, I feel, I feel like I've learned a lot of really valuable skills. Um, and so regardless of whether or not I continue working in the corporate sector or the medical sector or like eventually go back to research or something, um, those are skills that like will definitely be incredibly valuable uh, in any sort of path like that. Like I would say um, probably anyone who wants to go into research should learn, pro- learn programming. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. And would you say R is the primary programming language that people should be learning? Depends. Python is also very good, and Python's a little bit more versatile as well. Um, for work, I use primarily Python and SQL. I haven't used R for work. So like mm-hmm. R is really good for like data analysis and modeling. Python is really good for cleaning up uh, data. The pandas package in particular is very useful combined with NumPy. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes what I do, like what I might do if I was going to use all three languages, um, would be I would use SQL to pull from the database if the data was stored in a SQL server or PostgreSQL database. Um, and then I would probably use the pandas py- package in Python to like transform the data and get it into an orderly data set. Um, and then I could either do the analysis in Python or in R. Um, yeah. But probably my preference for cleaning data would be Python over R. Mm, that makes sense. That's actually how I did with my thesis and my current project as well is that I find that it's easier to process the data set in Python because it's a lot more flexible and you can actually do um, the coding versus in R. I feel like you're not actually coding nearly as much. It's more just writing out like the model and then running commands. Yeah. And the thing is, um, Python is an object oriented language and R is a function oriented language. So it's a lot easier to organize and transform objects than it is to like do that via functions. So they're kind of like just um, on the basis of like what the language is just kind of fundamentally different. Um, which also made teaching myself Python object-oriented after teaching myself R function-oriented difficult, but now mm-hmm. I can work in either of those. Um, and what kind of resources did you use for uh, teaching yourself these programming languages? So much Google. Um, Stack Overflow in particular is a really useful website. Um, they have answers to just about anything you can imagine. Um, I use some like YouTube tutorials sometimes, um, just like Googling like through YouTube, like how to do rank ordering in Python and then watch. Um, but I would say mostly it was Google. Um, I did buy a couple books and I'll consult those occasionally. They can be good for getting some basics, but probably probably 90% of it is Google. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah, it's nice that there's just so much knowledge out there that you can easily access and sometimes it can be frustrating though not finding the specific thing that you need oh. to do. <laughs> yeah, or like the worst is like when you get an error message but you don't have any idea like what the error message means. It's like uh Right, exactly. Uh, and then you just have to copy and paste the error message into Google and try to hope for the best, but Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
and you're stuck on that one specific question for like hours on end having no idea and then somebody points out usually charlie will point this out to me like oh you spelled this one thing wrong and it's like oh wow what a way to spend the last six hours not being able to spell yeah yeah i actually have gotten to the point where i there are two things i do to kind of expedite that process um, for projects I'm writing that I'm deploying, which means I'm putting them into our cloud-based services to run automatically on a schedule, mm -hmm. um, I write my own logs. So like there's lines of code that like pop up on the interface screen after everything has done. So mm -hmm. if it stops somewhere, I know where it stopped. Like it stopped after this log note, before this log note. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also write PyTests, which is for Python, you can write Python scripts to test the functions that you have written to transform or analyze your data based on test data and say the answer should be this and then run it. And if the answer doesn't come out to that, something's wrong with your function. Hmm. So if you're writing things that you're like going to use over a long time or like need to be particularly reliable, like running PyTest can be very helpful. That's really cool. Is that a function? Is that a function, just PyTest? Uh, so PyTest, I have to run through the command line interface. And I had to install a like uh, PostgreSQL server instance um, through the command line. Um, and then you write the PyTest and you have to get Conda into your um, into your interface. And then you just do like PyTest and then your script.py and it'll run it. Oh, cool. Um, it can be a little tricky to get set up, but it's it's certainly useful. But you also need an environment set up. So it's kind of like beyond what your like probably normal level of like research program or expertise would be. Right. Right. And what programming environment do you use? Do you use PyCharm or R or do you use um, like Anaconda? Depends. Um, so for my R, R codes, I use RStudio. Mm -hmm. um, for SQL, I use a program called dBeaver, which um, is a database manager program. It's free and it mm -hmm. works with both uh, SQL Server and PostgreSQL, which are two dialects of SQL that I use um, simultaneously depending on the database. And then for Python, I usually do to my development of my projects in Jupyter Notebook, because I find the cells very useful that you can test one cell at a time. Right. Um, and then when I'm translating them out of the notebook, I use a program called Atom. Um, okay. And, and so Atom is like, I, I is just a uh, script editor and it, you can install its extensions. So I have one called Python Black that like automatically formats my code and stuff like that. Cool. Um, and then, through Atom, you can connect to your Git repos. So you can like do um, automatic like uh, Git pushes and Git pulls and, and stuff like that. Cool. Oh, that's really useful information. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Adam, Adam, if you're using Git, it's super great because you can just push a button. You don't even have to do like Git pull or Git push or whatever. Right, right. I feel like we could have been like taught all the basics of programming undergrad at some point instead that's of just. Yeah, because I, I mean, I don't know about you, but like at USC, this was all optional. Like it's optional if you take any programming classes at all. Um, we could have learned SPSS or we could have learned R. It was all kind of just like they kind of equated the two programming languages when in reality, one is maybe, you know, completely different from the other. Yeah, and SPSS, no one uses it professionally. Like sometimes researchers do, I guess, but um, certainly no projects are done with SPSS actually. 
Yeah, but like in the in the like data analyst like data science world, like no one uses SPSS. There's That's... like not very much you can actually do with SPSS. So the types of analysis you're limited to, if you only know SPSS, severely limits what you can research. Absolutely. That's true. From my understanding, the models that SPSS can run are are pretty much uh, limited to just a handful, right? Or Yep. Okay. And you can't customize them. Right. <laughs> Which is important in research, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And it's expensive to buy. <laughs> so <laughs> um, people frown upon it for that reason as well, because it's not open source like a lot of other programming languages. Yeah, you can get R open source. You can get Python open source. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. PostgreSQL is open source. If the audience is looking forward to just a thesis <laughs> part, this is where it's going to begin. And if you're looking forward to more data stuff, stay tuned. So Charlie, you, you wrote your thesis on exploring differences in dysphoria between transgender men and transgender women. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you became involved in research and chose mm -hmm. you know, this specific topic? Well, I am personally a binary trans man. Um, and I was uh, irritated, to put it lightly, about uh, the research being done um, about transgender people by cisgender scientists. Um, so I was like, someone who actually knows things should do this research. <laughs> I'm not saying cisgender scientists can't do trans research, but they also need to like talk to trans people exactly. before they like come up with their like studies or like make their hypotheses like i am begging you just talk to a trans person oh my god um we're not even that difficult to find if you're in a city um, uh i will admit if you're in a rural area it's a little more difficult uh, but the internet exists um, and as for research um you know i'm just i've always been very into science as a child i was the person who asked for a microscope for my fourth birthday um and received one Nice. Um, you know, I, science was always my favorite classes. Uh, math wasn't because I had some pretty bad teachers who uh, treated me really badly. Um, so I didn't come back to liking math until I took statistics in college. But the stats courses, like even the intro stats 101 course was like my favorite course that semester. Like I always loved them. Um, so I got involved in research pretty quickly um, because that was the area of the field that most interested me. Um, and so I and I'm um, very good at uh, getting myself involved when I want to be like when I was I was in college for a long time because I dropped out of school to transition and stuff. But like I managed to get a full research position like my uh, freshman year um, of college, my first go around, um, just just walked up to a professor and asked. Um, so I was able to get involved in research very quickly um, and I knew I wanted to do my own. Um, and I was kind of kind of very ambitious. I was the only one in my honors class who had a thesis project where the data was not from a professor, where in fact my project was not from a professor at all. Uh, I was not connected with a lab. I collected my own data. Uh, I did my own analyses. Like my professor had, uh, my advisor had a good background in data, but no background in my subject. Um, so I was basically kind of running an independent project and consulting with someone on like what statistics to run, um, you know, occasionally, which I think is why I won the undergraduate research symposium, um, mm -hmm. because according to the professors, I was doing graduate student level work. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so, you know, I was so, so frustrated by so much of the literature about trans people. And then like mine specifically was on dysphoria. Um, and I just feel like they talked about dysphoria as this uniform monolith concept that was the same no matter like what gender you are. And that's just not true. 
-hmm. Like all it would take is to talk to like a trans woman and a trans man and ask them about dysphoria and you would see immediately that it's different. It prevents presents differently, which makes mm -hmm. sense because they're different genders and different bodies. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not even getting into non-binary people, which is like a whole another ballgame. Mm. Um, and so I just, I just saw this massive gap in the research that probably no cis scientist was going to see because they just weren't talking to trans people. Um, and that, you know, I don't blame cis people for not being able to understand dysphoria on that level because they don't experience it. Um, but like, if you're going to make that your field of research, you need to have community connection. Would you um, say that's the norm, though, for cisgender uh, researchers to study uh, trans people? Uh, I would say that much more cis people are researching it than trans people, largely because of institutional barriers. Absolutely. Um, like trans people are often not college educated because we're often like very poor and disadvantaged mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, and I would say even fewer make it all the way to the PhD level. Um, and so, yes, I would say that most of the research being done is being done by cisgender scientists. Um, could you tell us about what you found in your honors thesis? Yeah, so unsurprisingly, <laughs> uh, I found that structurally dysphoria presented differently between men and women. And when I say men, I mean trans men, female to male. And when I say women, I mean trans women, female, uh, male to female, mm -hmm. um, because that that's that's the appropriate way to refer to us is by the gender that we identify as not that we're born as um and so for trans men like i the analysis i did uh split physical dysphoria into factors so like i did a survey that like asked how uncomfortable you are with body parts and there was like 30 questions split into like primary secondary and neutral characteristics um and so it grouped the factor analysis grouped the body parts that are like closest together in answer together so for like trans men, I found like eight factors of dysphoria. For trans women, I found five. So that's different already. They were also qualitatively very different. Um, there was an issue with my sample size. It did skew towards trans men. I had about a three times as many trans men as trans women, um, which is largely based on how my recruitment post went viral. Um, because my recruitment post went viral because I have a friend who has over 60,000 followers on Tumblr. That's um, so and funny. who is and who is transmasculine. Um, and so I asked them to reblog my uh, recruitment post and it got like f over 500 reposts. Wow. Um, but it skewed towards the transmasculine end uh, because of that that demographic. Um, right. So I got a ton of responses, but it did it did skew transmasculine. Um, so that is that is an issue. But I do believe that my findings stand on their own enough. The statistics were strong enough to support that there were indeed true differences between dysphoria and trans men and trans women. Absolutely. So like trans men, you got like different factors. Like one of them like seemed to just concern like upper arm muscularity. Um, one of them concerned maybe weight that was like related to figure and like legs and buttocks and stuff. Places where people who are designated female at birth tend to put on weight. Um, and it tends to be kind of gender coded weight as well mm. like you would associate someone with bigger hips or a bigger butt with like being like more womanly quote unquote mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and then you know chest was a major major area of concern for trans masculine people which is not surprising at all um mm -hmm. and trans women like they they kind of had um some concerns that were the, the body areas were different they had concerns about muscularity but like kind of taking place in, in a little bit different areas than just the trans men, kind of more of a full body thing. Uh, trans women had concerns about Adam's apple that trans men didn't really have. 
Um, so yeah, so I was just finding that uh, as far as what the factors were and the number of factors, they were they were differing. Um, and this has treatment implications, not so much for like medical transition because those techniques are already like pretty well worked out. Like trach shaves for Adam's apples exist, like top surgery exists, et cetera, et cetera. But like in so far as like how um, medical healthcare professionals and especially mental healthcare professionals are going to be talking to trans people about their dysphoria, um, knowing that it presents differently in men and women is very important. Um, particularly when you're talking to people as a mental health professional who cannot at that moment afford to medically transition and you need to talk to them about what they can do to mitigate that, like knowing how their dysphoria is presenting in their body specific to their gender would be very important. Why, why do you think these uh, differences exist between trans men and trans women? Uh, well, uh, male and female bodies are different. Um, be that cis male and cis female or cis or trans men and trans female. So like not, it is not true that all trans people want to be cis passing, want to be looked like identical to cis people like I myself do. Um, but it's true that many do. Um, and so the parts of their body that they're feeling uncomfortable with are going to be different because um, like trans men might be like very concerned with like, their their um their hands not being like big and square enough um like that's that's an area of dysphoria that i've never seen a transgender uh, i mean a cisgender researcher speak about ever uh mm -hmm. but i've personally anecdotally known many trans men who were like dysphoric about their hands because they were like softer and smaller uh baby hands being something that's thrown around mm -hmm. um and so that's an area that trans men may be concerned about whereas trans women would be concerned their hands are too big um you know um so it's kind of like some areas may of the body may be the, the same but the concerns are different and they may have been overlooked by cis scientists anyways um mm -hmm. trans men can be very dysphoric about their arms the muscularity whereas trans women that's not usually an area of concern uh you know so it's stuff like that mm -hmm. um yeah yeah, thank you for walking us through all of that. And so you've already alluded to your data analysis and how it was very uh, complex and uh, adva more advanced than uh, what you'd expect an undergraduate researcher to do. So I was wondering if you'd be able to just sort of walk us through your data analysis. Okay, so I did, like, the main thing, like I said, was the factor analysis. Mm -hmm. um, I gathered data via Qualtrics. The questions were randomized, and they were done... Um, the surveys were distributed based on whether or not you were designated male at birth or designated female at birth because the body parts are different. Um, so it was two scales. I used this scale called the body image scale, um, which has a like cis male and cis female version. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, those have like different anatomical items on them that are like matched, but they're different because again, bodies are different. Uh, although this does not account, obviously, for intersex people, but to my knowledge, no intersex people took my survey. Um, and so I first did a analysis called a horns parallel analysis to determine the number of factors for each gender, um, which was necessary to do before I could run a factor analysis, because for a factor analysis, I needed to have an amount of factors that I could plug in. Mm -hmm. um, and so once I had that number, which was eight for trans men and five for trans women, um, I ran an exploratory factor analysis in R um, and then uh, got kind of my exploratory model. Mm -hmm. And then I ran a confirmatory factor analysis, which uses structural equation modeling uh, to check the fit of the survey model. So the body image scale 
um, had its own model, which was grouping into primary, secondary, and neutral characteristics. And then once I had the like uh, confirmation numbers from both of those, I did a, a model comparison using chi-square difference um, test ANOVA to compare, compare the fit. Um, and in both cases, trans men and trans women, my explore, exploratory models fit better than the body image scale model. Um, in fact, the body image scale model was statistically significantly matching for uh, trans men, but mm -hmm. for trans women, it wasn't. And both of my models statistically were valid uh, for both, both gender options. And then I also did another analysis I haven't really talked about, but I was also testing people who had been on hormone replacement therapy versus who had not within gender um, to see if hormone replacement therapy makes like a like significant impact. Um, it did for trans men. Um, it didn't for transgender women, but I think that's a sample size problem um, because mm -hmm. it did show improvement. It just didn't show statistically significant improvement. Um, and so to compare uh, scores by hormone replacement therapy within gender, I used a multi-group confrontatory factor analysis um, to get the models and then did two group ANOVAs um, on each factor to uh, assess differences within factors and calculate effect size. It had a, a p-score value. It was an f factor because it was an ANOVA, an f score. Mm -hmm. um, and so for trans men, um, I, had, I had a few different significant factors, but only only my factor five was significant, which was uh, so for trans men, uh, social signifiers was my factor. Uh, testosterone sensitive features. Uh, it, sorry, for trans men, it's testosterone sensitive features, uh, which was facial hair, voice and body hair. So it makes sense that that one would be the one that was most changed by hormone replacement therapy, because that's is where testosterone has the strongest impact. Uh, it causes you to grow facial hair. It causes your voice to drop. It causes your body hair to thicken. And those are the most like immediate and obvious changes from testosterone. For trans women, um, the only significant factor uh, by gender was also their factor five, which was, I said, uh, social signifiers, which was body hair, breast, chest, and Adam's apple. Um, and again, uh, body hair is decreased by hormones. Uh, breasts are increased. Breasts and chest are increased by hormones. And then Adam's apple is just something that um, trans women tend to be self-conscious about. So am, am I understanding this correctly to say that like these factors or these uh, facets of your body image um, for the trans community is altered through um, HRT or hormone replacement therapy the most significantly, as opposed to the others? Um, I would say that that would be true. Um, that's pretty much pretty well known through medical literature. Um, like that's not really new findings. It's like right. people know what puberty looks like, right? Like, <laughs> um, but it's it's significant that like the mental health outcomes are are supportive of what the medical data suggests. So would I be correcting assuming that um, like one of the significances of your thesis is that this scale that you used was actually not accurate for trans women, but it's more biased towards trans men? Uh, the scale that I used, uh, my exploratory models were better in both cases. Um, mm -hmm. I, I had some real nitpicks with the scale that I used. I mean, among other things, it classified Adam's apple as a neutral sexual characteristic, what? which is just not true. <laughs> yeah, that's ridiculous. Who, okay, who uh, I would, the scales? 
who made these scales? Uh, this one's probably it's it's probably like thirty years old. Oh wow! Uh, but there hasn't been like a newer scale made. Like if I was going to follow up on this research, I would probably try and create my own scale. Definitely. Um, yeah, you should do it, Charlie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I have time, I, I'm pretty busy with my full time job. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but like I said, I might I might go back to research. It really depends on like how my career goes now and like what happens with my partner and his job and and stuff like that. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, so so I found that that scale like was pretty flawed um, overall, and that my exploratory models like w fit better. Mm -hmm. Right, and that's why it's so important to have people who are actually experiencing these kinds of things in the research. So that you're actually getting the community that you're exploring. Yeah, I definitely agree. Mm -hmm. uh, did you go into your thesis knowing how you wanted to analyze your data? Uh, I knew kind of broadly I wanted to do factors. Um, my advisor helped teach me stuff like Horn's parallel analysis. Um, but I knew, I mean, the thing with data is if you know what questions you want answered, that will lead you to what analyses you need to do. So my question was, how is dysphoria different between men and women, trans men and trans women? So if you're trying to find the how for something that's kind of like a construct like that, then like there should be like structural differences, like with body parts, right? So then if you're looking for structural differences, you need a factor analysis to find the factors that make the structure. And then it's like, well, I want to see if the differences are between hormones and norhormones. Well, that's a group comparison. So you need an ANOVA. So, so factor analysis is it? What is it commonly used for? It's for example, scales. For okay. Scales. Um, it's used for creating scales of measurement. Would you say that like interesting research on the trans community is desired by you know both the trans and research communities? Because you did mention that people were quite excited about this. Yes, um, trans people were very excited to have research being done by a trans person. Um, I know it can be difficult to find trans subjects for research. Uh, because of very val valid mistrust uh, of the research community by transgender people. Um, mm -hmm. So just, I, I outed myself as a transgender scientist and that immediately increased interest uh, by a ton um, and also willingness um, to participate. Um, and so definitely the trans community wants the research to be done. They just want it to be done by someone they can trust. Um, mm -hmm. And because of a really ugly history of psychology and trans people, they just, uh, we just, don't often trust cisgender researchers, um, that, which isn't to say they can't be, but they need to show they can be trusted. They need to reach out to the community. They need to be transparent. They need to be open. Um, mm -hmm. You know, um, they need to, I would say any cisgender researcher who wants to trans, uh, research trans issues should have like a conversation with like a few trans people before they even develop their hypotheses. Like the first step, if you wanna do a trans research project should be talk to a trans person. Uh, right. Ideally, ideally more than one. Um, 100%. And this, yeah. this advice goes the, uh, towards people from any sort of background. You should have a conversation with them first before you do a whole research project on, I don't know, say someone from just in general marginalized communities. Uh, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, a, and so, yeah, so the trans community was very excited for this research to be done um, and very interested in participating. Um, and, you know, I, Trans research is a growing field within the field of psychology itself, um, which is just kind of as society becomes more accepting, then the research field becomes more well-funded, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. 
can you can you go more into um, the history between psychology and the trans community? You know, the well, formation trust. There's, I mean, there's still a ton of bitterness due to the amount of gatekeeping, um, because trans people still need letters from psychiatrists or psychologists to get surgery and hormones in most cases. Right. Um, like I, I had surgery uh, like uh, two years ago, and I had already been on hormones for like, oh, I don't know. I guess it's was five years at that point and I'd already had one surgery and I still had to get a letter from a therapist, even though I've like been living as male and legally male and passing, et cetera, et cetera, for years and years at this point. Um, and so, you know, it's just stuff like that. And then like you have like crappy therapists that like won't write people letters because they're not trans the right way or they, you know, they won't for whatever reason or they think they're too mentally ill to be trans, but being trans is actually excavating the mental illness. So like unless they transition, they're not going to get better. Um, like I definitely had, uh, I had a situation where I had a surgery scheduled and at the 11th hour, my doctor said he wouldn't write the letter and I had to scramble around trying to get one. It was a real nightmare. Wow. Um, That's horrific. Yeah. Um, and I, like, I'm coming at this from a privileged position. Like I'm from like a family with the money to like support me in my transition. And while my family was not initially supportive by that point, they were. Um, and so, yeah, so it's just like, you know, there's a lot of. There's a lot of, and like you've get, you, there are like gender non-conforming trans people. So like there's butch trans women and femme trans men. And so like a, a lot of times cisgender like researchers and, and doctors and, and healthcare professionals will think they're not really trans because they don't have like a gender normative presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it used to be that like gay trans people would have a really hard time transitioning because like they didn't like the right gender, um, the right sex. And so there's just like a whole huge history of gatekeeping and there's been some very exploitative research um and like pathologizing like uh transgender gender identity was only removed as a disorder in like 2013 um and it was changed to gender dysphoria which is a set of symptoms that can be treated Mm -hmm. um so it's just it's just a really messy history yeah 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 psychology research does not have a good history of no (laughs) of studies at all that's so interesting because we think of trans rights as something that's been established for like some time, but like it really hasn't. It's like in recent history and we're still part of Who that. Who thinks that? I don't <laughs> think that. People are like, oh, we're post-race, we're post-LGBTQ+, we're post-oppression. Like those people who are like, we're in an era of equality and peace <laughs> for them. It is equality and peace for them. And they're usually yeah. white men. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but but I think last time I checked, um, there was like this case uh, in mainland China where there was this uh, transgender man who wanted to um, legally change his pronouns and to go through the surgery, but he wasn't able to do so. And he was fired from his job. So he sued his workplace for discrimination against his gender identity. And he actually won that case because, um, but I mean, he won that case. And I, I, I have a very ambiguous feelings about this because the reason he won that case was the judge deemed trans uh, being transgender as a mental illness so the ruling was based on being trans as categorized as a mental illness and therefore he cannot be discriminated against um his gender for being mentally ill Mm, yeah that sounds about right we we have a history of that in the united states too and it's only just getting past that point yeah Oh, well, thank you for talking about those experiences and your personal history with it as well. Um, how would you advise anyone who wants to include trans people in their research, whether whether uh, they're focused on trans research or 
or just want to include more, um, you know, more people from diverse gender spectrums? Like I said, you need to talk to trans people, but first, before you do that, you need to read up about trans trans issues and like how to talk to trans people so that you're not offending the people that you're talking to. Like it is not trans people's job to educate you, educate yourself before you even go talk to the trans people. Because like, I guarantee you, they're not going to want to help you if you go up to them and like immediately misgender them or like say something really ignorant or whatever. And like, it can be things that like, like just saying something like the opposite gender is like not like good with like trans people because like non-binary exists and it's a spectrum. And so like male is not opposite of female and like it, it you know, stuff like that. So it's just like, first, like read stuff by trans people like read like some like you know like gender stuff read like someone's memoir or whatever although that can be touch and go because people are different um you know so before you even do that educate yourself on the terminology like glad can be a resource whatever uh educate yourself on like trans concepts like have like some basic understanding of the community uh you'll still probably stumble up because like but like that's expected like i'm fairly patient with people who stumble if i can tell it's in good faith Mm-hmm. Like I don't accept expect every cisgender person to like nail it 100% of the time. Like not even my partner. Like my partner is a cisgender gay man, and he's fantastic. We've never had any problems. But even him, like I don't live my life expecting that he's never gonna like stumble on that because it's just not realistic. Like putting him on that kind of pedestal will just lead to problems down the line. Mm-hmm. So it's like no trans person. Well, most trans people will not like jump on you for making like an honest mistake that was clearly like non malicious. Uh, unless they're having a bad day, maybe. Um, But so, you know, just do some basic research and then talk to actual trans people before like starting theorizing about like what the trans experience is. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, just like do your outreach, do your research um, and make sure you're staying current. Like uh, the transgender community today is very different from the transgender community when I first came out almost 10 years ago. Um, Like when I was first coming out, which was in like uh, 2012, yeah, 2012, um, like non-binary was not a thing. Like I that that word was not in concept. The closest that existed was like genderqueer, which was like similar. Mm -hmm. Um, But like this concept of like non-binary and the gender binary and all of these like other identities was not really in there, which also means like I as a person like within the last 10 years have seen my friends, some of them go from identifying as like binary trans people to non-binary because the option is now there. Mm. Um, So like if you're only looking at like stuff trans people were saying like 10 or 15 years ago, you're going to be behind the times already because it's so rapidly evolving. Um, So try and try and find the more current stuff um that the transgender community is is going on with for sure yeah absolutely that's why it's so important to have updated scales too to reflect the new experiences that people are Mm -hmm. are going through Mm -hmm. yeah and i think it's also important to point out the fact that non-binary and trans people have always existed what hasn't always existed social acceptance and the labeling so yeah um could you maybe Talk, can we talk more about these institutional barriers against trans people um, in advancing the higher ed? Yeah, I mean, poverty is a huge one. Um, trans people are like very disproportionately likely to be poor and homeless and not able to find work. Um, so even just getting to college in the first place um, can be a real, a real struggle. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, definitely, I mean, a lot of my friends are not college educated. Um, trans or not, um, and, and because my friends are like queer from like 
disadvantaged backgrounds, et cetera. Um, and so just even accessing higher education in the first place is like a huge pro pro problem, and that's well known in, in this country, um, which has no civilized education system. Um, <laughs> uh, and then like, you know, like I haven't had problems personally because like I'm a cis passing trans person mm -hmm. like when people see me they just like see a like cis straight white man um and actually I'm only one of those things which is white um <laughs> uh oh well cis I'm a man too but I'm not a cis man right. uh but um so like you know when I'm trying to get like research positions or something like I'm not having any problems um mm -hmm. But like, say you have like a non-passing trans woman, like professors might have like unconscious or conscious biases where like someone who like looks or sounds like that would like not be getting the research positions, would like not be getting the interviews. Um, there may be issues where like if someone hadn't been able to legally change their name yet, their name on like their like application papers to a grad program would be different from their physical appearance or given name. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had problem when I was applying for uh, grad apps I had to write in my pronoun as mx instead of mrs or miss or mister oh. um, yeah luckily many grad apps you know they allow the option for me to write in if my pronouns are different but many do not and for many of the films uh, the forms that I still fill out today for whatever reason I have to physically write in where there is no space <laughs> I actually I will actually cross out the mister versus miss pronoun uh, when I have the energy to do it during the day, and then I'll manually write down MX. But yeah, it, it's even the, like the small things like that. Yeah, just and like your confidence that academia is getting better. Yeah, and like I don't have any proof that I ever graduated from high school because my high school, I, my name has been legally changed. My high school refused to change my records. They refused. Wow. I'm from Texas. Did you ask? Oh yeah, they just kept ignoring my calls. Wow um yeah yeah but now i don't need it because i have a college degree so no one cares if i can prove that i graduated right. from high school or not <laughs> yeah. um but yeah so even stuff like that where you can't get your records like in your in your correct name um because of stuff like that um yeah so so you know and then there's like also like other like kind of um uh, intersectionality barriers as well, like um, autism and transness is correlated. Um, no one knows if autistic people are more likely to be trans or trans people are more likely to be autistic. Uh, right. But it is known that like disproportionately, lots of autistic people are trans, lots of trans people are autistic. <laughs> uh, and so I don't think, I think it's fairly obvious that if you're like a, um, like, obviously, or like, perceivably autistic person, you're going to have problems like going further in your career. We have to address the elephant in a room, which is that both Charlie and I are like on the spectrum, especially for non-binary people. Like we generally score pretty high on the autism assessment form. Right. A lot more than non-autistic individuals. Yeah. I, which makes sense because like part of, part of the issue with gender is that it's like social rules. Um, true. Yeah. Like, so, you know, it's hypothesized that maybe autistic people are more likely to be trans because we aren't like as affected by these like social rules, like right. determining what gender should be. Um, and so that might make someone more likely to like explore their gender identity or break gender norms, et cetera. Um, could you talk more about how, how being on a spectrum might have helped you in your research? Yeah, um, I'm definitely more inclined to think logically and analytically um in general uh just just the way that my mind works is kind of more like science geared uh at risk of sounding like stereotypical 
Um, you know, I can't actually remember the last time I made a decision based off of emotion and not logic. Um, and um, so like when I'm thinking about things, I'm seeing like structure, I'm seeing like cause and effect, I'm seeing relationships. And so like, you know, it's kind of easier for me to, you know, for me, like I do pretty well. So I do very well socially. I have a lot of friends, like I'm easy to talk to. I'm a friendly person. Um, mm -hmm. But like part of the way I understand social interaction is like breaking it down into rules. Like yeah. when you see someone, you say hi and they say hi and you ask, hey, how are you? And you listen, even if it's boring. And then they ask, how are you? And you're like, I'm fine, thanks. And then you maybe talk about something else or maybe you're like, okay, see you later, bye. And that's like how the social interaction works. Like that's the formula for how it works. And mm -hmm. so like, um, and that makes me sound like a robot, but like, you know, it works. Um, <laughs> and so when, when you're studying like psychology, you're breaking down like these social phenomenon that most people like take for granted into these kind of formulaic interactions. Well, I already do that. That's just how... I'm yeah. wired. Mm -hmm. um, right. Yeah. Um, like even for me, like navigating romantic relationships, it's like, you know, I do this with my partner that I wouldn't do with like just a friend and like, you know, like it's different. It's it's, it's a, lot, a lot of a lot of my life is structured via rules, like unwritten or not. Um, and then a lot of what you're trying to break down psychology into is like rules for behavior, <laughs> rules yeah, for phenomena. Um, and so, like, I'm just kind of inclined to see the world that way anyway. So I do think it makes me a better scientist. It makes me a better programmer because, like, I just, I'm I'm more inclined to think logically and logic is what programming is. If this, then this, except this, et cetera, uh, mm -hmm. is basically what programming breaks down into. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the issue with programming is the computer will tell, do exactly what you told it to. Now, if you told it to do the right thing, that's the question. But it's going to do exactly what you told it to. The way I look at things is already inclined to be kind of that breakdown model. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, that I'm sure that must really help. I'm sure with you two, we can with research and everything and just blocking it off into those certain categories and, and norms. Yeah. What about Homer replacement therapy? Maybe we could talk more about that. Yeah. I mean, I personally am on it. Um, have been for nearly for seven and a half years now. But do you still have to be on it? Uh, like, do you have to be on it throughout your life? Yes. At this point, I will die if I stop taking it because I removed my ovaries. And if you have no sex hormones in your body, that will kill you. Um, wow. <laughs> you'll have a heart attack eventually. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a vital information. Yes. That yeah. Is very <laughs> uh, yeah. So even if it wasn't testosterone, I would have to take some kind of like estrogen or something because my body does not make sex hormones anymore. Not everyone is on it for life. I know some trans people, often non-binary people, might take like a low dose of testosterone for a period of time to like get some effects without getting the full effect and then go off of it, like to have their voice drop a little bit and like maybe um, maybe like grow a little hair and then like stop so that you don't like get the full masculinizing effect. Like I suspect people probably do the same thing with estrogen, but I just don't know that personally. Mm -hmm. uh, also, estrogen takes is less dramatic and takes longer to go into effect than testosterone, which pretty much hits you like a sledgehammer. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> my voice dropped a full octave in like six weeks. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, my throat was very sore. Um, oh, I bet. Uh, and I was working at Starbucks, so I'm like trying to call drinks and like my voice is cracking. Like it was whole whole thing. Uh, but yeah, so like hormone replacement therapy is like the most accessible um physical transition option for sure both financially and just logistically 
Mm-hmm. Um, but not entirely like rural area trans people get kind of like screwed having to go like hours into the big city to access hormones and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. That makes sense. Uh, I feel like there's a bit of like a social pressure on trans people or, or non-binary people to go into hormone replacement therapy as if yeah. it's like a limiting factor in whether you're actually trans or not. Yeah, definitely. That pressure is there both without and unfortunately within the community. Mm-hmm. Um, there are definitely like trans people who think you're not really trans unless you experience dysphoria a specific way and like have hormones and surgery and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. And there's even a schism within the community over like binary trans people who don't think like non-binary is valid. Like that's a whole big ugly thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's a fairly unified community, but it's not completely. Um, right. And there is infighting as there is in any community um but yeah i'd say definitely there is pressure to do hormones um there's definitely pressure from like cisgender mental health care professionals um who are like i won't like sometimes people want to have surgery about my hormones and a lot of times being on hormones is a prerequisite for surgery it really sounds like it's a bunch of cisgender mental health researchers thinking that it's like like thinking that there's a hierarchy of the things you can do like do to your body to prove that you're trans enough to go to the ultimate holy grail of going through surgery it's yep that's exactly it (laughs) oh my gosh it used to be god it used to be even so much worse now you can get at certain hormone clinics informed consent so you don't need a doctor's note you just sign a letter saying yes i know what i'm doing and they give you the hormones right which is a big step forward um and it's how i got into hormones personally um and that's relatively new um so at least that's but it used to be that you had to like be living as your social gender for a year before they would let you get on hormones. And then you had to be on hormones for a year before they'd let you get surgery. Um, and obviously living as a social gender role without hormones can be very dangerous because if you're not passing, particularly if you're a trans woman, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you can get killed um, right. actually. Um, and so the gatekeeping used to be even worse than it is now, um, but there's still definitely elements of that kind of like path to transition. And surgery is, like Ekim said, seen as this kind of like holy grail where it's like, you know, it's like, oh, irreversible change to your body, like not like hormones aren't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not going to ungrow this beard I have. Um, <laughs> um uh but yeah so it's it's definitely it's definitely the case um and like certain surgeries need more letters than others like top surgery i needed one but like if i got bottom surgery i might need like two or three like it's this whole big stupid system uh well thank you so much for being on our podcast and the audience if you're listening to this um let us know on twitter at hi coffee hour if you would like to hear more about charlie's career or his specific data analysis done for his honors thesis um and just let us know yeah hi guys really?